Today's episode is episode two out of the two-part series discussing my dissertation topic. So if you have not done so already, it would be helpful to listen to part one first for continuity's sake. Also, we discuss a couple of myths in this episode that deal with gods behaving badly. So there's a brief mention of both suicide and of violence against women, and also a god just being a jerk to a mortal. So heads up on that. Hello, welcome to Foss and Crafts, a podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host, Morgan. And my co-host, Christine. So what's this episode about? It is part two of my dissertation research on women in textile production in the Roman Empire. I think last time we went through the various sites that you were using as kind of your case study locations. Mm -hmm. And we had a domestic section. Yep. And a commercial section. Yep. And now... There is the performative aspects of textile production is the next one. Why don't we get into that? What does this mean by performative aspects of textile production? So textile production was so entrenched as quote unquote woman's work that in a lot of ways it was kind of used to construct identities. It was used as a marker of femininity. And this plays out in a lot of ways. And there's kind of a chicken or egg scenario for whether textile production was associated with women because they did it first and then therefore it became this performative aspect of femininity. Or if it started with this kind of more performative role and then women just continued doing it because that's what was traditional or expected. Except chicken and egg is kind of a bullshit metaphor, right? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, eggs preceded chickens by a dramatic Mm -hmm. period of time, right? Yeah. In in evolutionary history. But the thing is, is that like chickens and eggs and also whatever preceded chickens and eggs, the co-evolution of eggs proceeded alongside the creatures that it ended up evolving with, right? Yeah. So do you, is that kind of what you're thinking in this dissertation? I say as a question mark with, well, actually knowing what the dissertation says. Yeah, so we don't really know which came first. And we'll never actually know that because that is quite literally ancient history. But the idea that we've got this kind of cyclical thing going on where you've got women working in textile production and you've got the feminine attribute aspect of textile production and they feed into each other all right great i see that the first subsection of this chapter is marriage so what what does marriage have to do with textile production we don't have one really great source that we can point to that tells us the roman marriage rituals and it probably was not a static marriage ritual throughout rome but we do have a few snippets of information 
Most of them come from antiquarians, so it's a little bit difficult to get your hands on the source materials. So I largely had to go off of secondary sources that had gotten their hands off of primary source materials, partially because there was a pandemic going on when I was writing this, so I couldn't get into libraries, let alone archives. So hard to find the materials, but what is that? What do, what do we know? So we've got a couple of ways that textiles were involved in the marriage ceremony. One is that there were certain parts of the bridal attire that the bride made herself. So this included the tunica that she was wearing. And then also there's a special yellow hairnet that was associated with bridal attire that the bride made herself. So in this sense, in making these items herself, the bride was in a certain way advertising her skills, right? Here is what I will bring to my husband's family is my ability to make textile-related things. Another part of the wedding ceremony was the deductio, which is a procession from the bride's familial home to her husband's home. And it was symbolic movement, which is also an actual physical movement from one household to the other. And during this procession, the bride was accompanied by some young boys, and we've got some somewhat confusing slash conflicting examples as to whether the bride herself was carrying a spindle and or distaff, and potentially even spinning during this procession, or if it was her attendant children that were holding them, but... But even if it was her attendant children, that's still an association with the bride. It's, here, look what I'm bringing to this domestic economy. Yes. Almost all of these things that are associated with the marriage rights are, look what I'm bringing to the domestic economy. The last textile thing is once she made it to her husband's house after this procession, she would attach some pieces of wool to the lintels of the door, which again is saying, literally, look what I'm bringing. To this household. It's textiles. Yep. So the next section of this chapter is funerary rites. What does woolworking have to do with death? You're dead. There's nothing else to do. Yeah, you're dead. You're no longer doing it. So there's two main things that are associated with funerary rites and rituals. One is grave goods, which are the material culture objects that are buried or interred with the body or cremated remains. And then the other one is funerary iconography, which is the imagery that's represented on graves. Mm -hmm. So with grave goods, there is throughout the ancient world, not just in the Roman Empire, but also in the Roman Empire, there's a pretty healthy amount of textile tools as grave goods to the extent that archaeologists at least provisionally will identify a grave as a woman's grave if it has these textile implements in it. And these are very similar to the textile tools that we talked about in domestic contexts. So you've got spindle whorls, you've got distaffs, sometimes you've got needles or thimbles or smaller items like that, but mostly it's spindle whorls and distaffs. And sometimes these are highly ornate and made out of precious or semi-precious materials. 
Which, in general, we interpret those to be purpose-made for grave goods, right? So you don't necessarily have those things laying around your house ahead of time, but you purchase that in order to put it in a grave as part of the ritual of burial. A farewell gift, if you may. Yes, exactly. And tools in graves might be... Items that were useful in life and or particularly associated with the deceased in life. Or it could be that you're putting things that are specifically there as status symbols, which is typically how we interpret these overly ornate, usually distaffs. Sometimes there are fancier uh, spindle whorls as well. But a lot of times the tools that we find in funerary contexts, don't have any signs of use or wear on them, which implies that they haven't been at least used as daily tools. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, what does iconography mean? Iconography is visual representations that have some significant cultural meaning. It's iconic. That is a whole conversation that I am not prepared to have. Really? It really is. Because wow. in art history, the term iconic has very specific meanings. Isn't it iconic, don't you think? I am it's not. It's a little too iconic. I'm not having that conversation right now. But I really do think. I really don't. It's like thread. <laughs> On your wedding day? <laughs> On your wedding grave. <laughs> okay. So y there are a couple of different places that you could have imagery on Roman graves. One of them would be on a sarcophagus, which would be decorated sometimes just on the front, sometimes on three sides, so the front and the sides. Sometimes they may be decorated on the back, and sometimes there's a decorated lid as well. And then you might have funerary steles, which are steles? Yes. Is that actually spelled S T E L I E S? No, S-T-E-L-E-S. -E oh, okay. What does it mean? I don't know what that is. It is a slab of stone okay. that is decorated. It's kind not of... Not steel. Not steel. There isn't it's, even steel in this era. No, it's kind of like we would think of a headstone today. Okay. Although it would not necessarily be positioned above the grave as we would see it. It might be detached. Okay. So in this funerary iconography... We have the continuation of a tradition that's prevalent in Greek art, which is kind of the inclusion of some textile tools as just this attribute of femininity. And in Roman art, we almost never have people represented spinning in the action of spinning. However, what we might have is a wool basket at a woman's feet mm -hmm. as she's represented there or a distaff and a spindle sitting on top of that wool basket or maybe just kind of floating on the side so in other words somehow related to where you're buried pictures of like spinning and weaving and shit yes except for not spinning and weaving because typically it's in the, the implements it's the implements kind of statically there without being in use so and there's not there's no like depictions of it in, in action that appear on these i can honestly only think of one and it's 
anomalous in that it is a man spinning. Ooh. And it's a comically large distaff. Oh. It almost looks like he's holding like cotton candy. Oh, well, that's the one that in your dissertation you're like, hey, look, it's so much associated with femininity that they're here we have a picture of a dude and like it's being like we're like it's making like lampooning fun of him. it yeah. yeah it's lampooning it right okay i mean it could be that he's spinning something that's not wool like linen or something like that and they were trying to distinguish but it it's probably it's probably humorous yes okay. that's my take on it at least um all right so the the real summary here is the imagery of or actual textile implements appear when it's ladies being buried yes and one thing that i want to make a note of for the grave goods is not ubiquitously but there are a lot of instances where these kind of fancier distaffs and things are found in the graves of women who were pregnant or women who were interred with infant remains so there's some evidence to suggest that they are associated specifically with women who died in childbirth. Hmm. And the reason I point that out is if you then think about the three stages of life for a woman that these would be associated with, that would be... <laughs> the the reducing a woman to three stages yeah. in their life. Their marriage, childbirth, and death rough and it's entirely possible that all three of those could happen within a year yeah that's really rough it really is okay uh anyway being a woman in ancient rome kind of sucks uh, being a woman giving birth in basically any time period in yes. most of history was yes. rough mostly sucks all right so religion is the next thing on here um so this would be well, you've got religion here, and then you've got a subsection for Christian associations. I'm assuming before we jump straight into that, we are talking about, like, Roman as in quote-unquote pagan religion, right? Yeah, we're talking about Roman religion and the association with textiles here. And just to make a note, when I say the Roman tradition, I'm going to talk about two myths right now. They're both myths that have their origins in... Greek traditions, and then have Roman retellings as well. So I'm going to talk about the fates, which are the Greek Moirai, or the Roman Parcae. And then I'm going to talk about the story of Arachne, which in the Greek version is Arachne versus the goddess Athena. In the Roman version is Arachne versus the goddess Minerva. So we should keep in mind that myths are not static. We have a tendency in modern religions to think of religious texts as static, but that's not the case in ancient mythology. Right. Oral tradition and all that. Yeah, oral tradition and all that. One of the things that we talk about in Roman religion and textile production is the idea of the fates. These are three mythical sisters. Clotho, who is the sister who spins the thread of life. Laches, who is the one who allots or measures the thread of life. Wait, the next one's Wevo, right? It is not. It is Atropos, the one 
who cuts the thread of life. Ah, gotta cut it, not weave it. Yeah. There's no, nobody's weaving in the fates? Nobody's weaving in the fates. It's It's not at that stage of production. It's not at that stage of production. It is every single person has a thread of life. And these three sisters go through this process with every single person. So Quatho is not even making cloth. She is not. No. I feel like I feel That's like it's a misnomer. I feel like we're being ripped off here. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about how women are rarely shown in the act of spinning in Roman iconography, and Clotho is the exception to that rule. So oftentimes fates are represented in funerary iconography because they are there at the birth of someone. That's when they start spinning. And then they're also there when that person dies. So another mythical story that involves textiles deeply is the story of Arachne. And Arachne was a mortal woman who bragged that she was the best spinner and weaver, and she had a following of people around her who were also enamored of her skill. Did she brag directly to Athena? She did technically brag directly to Athena, but she didn't know it. So first, she bragged to people in general, to the extent that Athena heard about it. And it wasn't just that she was bragging that upset the goddess, it was that she was bragging and not giving credit to the goddess for teaching her. And then Athena, doing what gods and goddesses did when they wanted to interact with mortals and trick them, she took on another form. She took on the form of an old lady and confronted Arachne about why she's not giving credit to the goddess. And Arachne basically flippantly was like, well, if Athena wants to challenge me, she can come here and challenge me herself. And in the reveal that maybe Arachne saw coming, maybe she didn't, Athena turned back into a goddess and accepted the challenge. So they basically had a weaving contest and Athena makes a tapestry that shows all kinds of mythological scenes, many of which involve her as the victor or in a favorable light, but shows also a bunch of other gods and goddesses doing great things. And in contrast, Arachne weaves a tapestry depicting philandering gods who are deceiving humans, not terribly unlike what Athena had just done to Arachne, except the stories that she depicts. So a few of them are Europa and the bull, Leda and the swan, Dane and the gold coins, etc. If you want to look up those myths, we'll include them in the show notes, but trigger warning, they have a common theme that involves sexual violence against women. So basically she's depicting the gods in an unfavorable light. At the end of the contest, both of them make these beautiful tapestries and potentially even Arachne would have won this weaving contest. Except that Athena, getting enraged either at the skill or at the content of Arachne's tapestry, tears it to shreds and then starts beating Arachne with the shuttle. And Arachne, being humiliated and shamed by a goddess, can't 
handle this situation and hangs herself. And Athena, being the very least amount of gracious as she possibly could be, decides that Arachne does not deserve to die. So instead of allowing her to die by committing suicide and hanging herself, she turns her into a spider. So she's still hanging from threads and weaving, coincidentally, but in a way that essentially turns this mortal woman into a monster and further humiliates and shames her. Pretty crappy. Yes. So it's not safe to brag around goddesses or gods. That's going to end poorly for you as a mortal. Yeah. So this story is not terribly positive in that it does not end up well for the mortal woman, but it does kind of hinge on women hanging their identity on textile production. And from this myth, we get one, possibly both, of the depictions of Roman two-beam looms that we still have. The Hypogeum of the Aurelii depicts one loom with a woman standing in front of it. The Forum Transitorium depicts three looms with women actually in the process of weaving on them. But most likely, at least the one from the Forum Transitorium depicts something to do with the Arachne myth. Cool. So is that it for the quote-unquote pagan side of the religion thing for this this particular part of it? Or do you want to jump straight to the Christian part or what? No, there's one more thing for the religion part. and that So those were the myths that are associated with textile production. And then there's also either religious production of textiles or the use of either textiles or textile tools as votive offerings at temples. So votive offerings meaning? Votive offerings mean that you are giving this gift to the god or goddess. If in the case of textile tools or textiles, that's almost always a goddess. And that is to kind of convey your prayers to the goddess in a tangible physical. Is that usually done by burning it or do they just like say thanks and put it in a closet somewhere? They have treasuries at temples where they store all of the votive offerings. So archaeologically, we find these things. Hmm, interesting. And in stories of conquest, you have people stealing things. Oh, I feel like stealing things from the gods is like a way to get turned into like 10,000 spiders or something like that. It seems like a bad idea. Moving on. So on to the Christian association. So wait, what is it? Why, Why are Christian associations showing up in this in this story? Well, the time period of my dissertation is the 1st through 3rd centuries CE. And if you think about where the terms AD and BC come from, that time frame includes the beginning of Christianity, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a version of the Annunciation story from the Protevangelon of James, which we just talked about how myths were not static and you had multiple versions. That was the same for Christianity in the beginning, too. You have multiple different texts and sources that didn't necessarily all get codified into the Bible. Mm-hmm. And the Protevangelon of James is one of these. And the Annunciation is when the Archangel Gabriel appears before Mary and tells her that she is pregnant with Christ. And since she's a virgin, that is a very big shock. Mm-hmm. 
And in this version of the story, Mary was actually spinning when this announcement was made. And that's significant for a couple different reasons. One is because she was spinning for her temple. So this was an example of religious production of textiles. Wait, for for her, but she would have been Jewish. She would have been Jewish, yes. Okay. So this is a Jewish example in the Roman period of religious production of textiles by the women of the community. Okay. And there were multiple people who were producing textiles. Mary just got a certain allotment of it and was spinning her part. And then the other reason that this is significant is because this led to representations of Mary spinning. Mm -hmm. And this is significant because this is reflecting the Roman concept of women's association with textile production even in a Christian text and context. So this is not really said in your dissertation, but that's pretty common in a lot of Christian imagery basically comes from, like this happens in religions everywhere, but Mm -hmm. a lot of it, Christian imagery actually comes from borrowing from pagan religions, right? See, look, I, I, I did pay attention a bit during that survival of the pagan gods class we took when we were undergraduates. Thank you, Dr. Salway. Yes, thank you. So Christos Helios. Basically, Christianity is a thing that we're doing in the Roman Empire now. You all who were painting Apollo, you got to switch over to, you know, painting Jesus. And it's like, oh, hey, we already have this technique mm-hmm. for painting a sun god. Yeah. So we'll we'll port that over, right? And hey, you know, we need to create new imagery for, you know, Satan and, and everything like that. We'll just borrow the god pan and everything like that. And Or we need to represent a virtuous maiden. Who is being informed that she's going to become a mother and not just a mother, but the most important mother. So? So we're going to borrow the iconography for Virtuous Maidens. Yep. Okay, cool. So the next one, ceremonial functions of Ephesus distaffs. So this is going to tie back on a couple of the previously mentioned performative things. So... We talked about in the domestic production chapter and in the specifically Ephesus chapter that in Ephesus there was this type of overly ornate bone distaffs found and a good portion of these were found in domestic contexts. One of them was found in a grave with a spindle whorl and the actual spindle too, which was also made out of bone. And several of them were found kind of like in streets and gutters and deposits that didn't really have much context. And this type of object, as I mentioned in the grave goods section, outside of these examples from Ephesus, is almost always found as grave goods. And it's almost always interpreted as an object that was purpose-made as a grave good. Because these distaffs are highly ornate and made out of bone and would not have been that sturdy. So if you were, say, spinning for 10 hours a day, several days a week, these distaffs would not hold up to daily use. That's one of the reasons why this is assumed to be an object that is either meant for a ceremonial 
function specifically like burial or as a symbolic item and put it up in your tchotchke collection yeah so the scholar who has done the most publication on these objects elizabeth trinkle her interpretation is that these would not have been used they would have been decorative but decorative as a symbol of the power of the matron of the house the matrona so basically these would have been a status symbol Mm -hmm. for women and for some of these that may be true some of them are not large enough to actually use and she argues that none of them are large enough to use however from my experience of spinning myself and from the sizes recorded of these unfortunately i have not been able to see them in person but you've seen the measurements right? but i've seen the measurements i've seen images i believe that there's a second possibility here which is that they may have been used in specific ceremonial context oh wait let me let me reinterpret that so this is like the fancy dinner plates that you only bring out once a year or maybe once every 10 years when your family gets together for a special holiday or to celebrate a special event or something like that, right? Yeah. I mean, not, like not exactly like that, but like it's the, it's the equivalent, right? Like you, it's not that they're not used. It's that they're only used rarely. Yeah. So examples that they might be used would be to possibly produce those textile objects that are intended for the marriage ceremony, so the tunica and the hairnet. Or they might have been the visibly ornate distaffs that were carried in the marriage procession. So you are a fan of Trinkle's writing. I am a fan of Trinkle's writing. She has done great work with these objects. So this is not you putting down Trinkle. This is you trying to add to things by saying that you actually think that there is another possibility that's open. Yes, since most of these objects found in the Roman world at other sites are found in graves. And we've got one from Ephesus that's also from a funerary context. It seems pretty logical to infer that the end of life for these objects, if there hadn't been a fire in those terrace houses, would have been as grave goods. So my interpretation of them would be that they may have been gifts to brides to use in these ceremonial contexts. And then they served different functions as part of this performance of Roman femininity throughout a matron's life. And so like much of this type of interpretation of history, it's an interpretation based off of what evidence is available right but that's already what was happening right you're trying to give that uh interpretation or open it based off of what kind of evidence we do have right yes and if i had had more time everyone has things that they wish they could have done when researching and writing their dissertation if i had had more time i had the intention of making replicas of these distaffs and using them to see if they were usable And I'm not arguing that they would have been useful for large amounts of wool. But if you were, say, gathering with the women of your community and creating 
textiles for a specific religious ceremony or to use as votive offerings at a temple and you were therefore doing a constrained amount within this specific context, then they might have been used for those specific things. And my interpretation is that they could have been used specifically for the rites of passage of marriage, childbirth, and death. Okay. So now that you've gotten to rites of passage of marriage, childbirth, and death, we're at the conclusions part, which basically is talking about that, right? Mm-hmm. It's the your conclusions in this chapter is basically highlighting and hey look here's the performative aspects of women's lives the highlights of what end up becoming the stories Mm -hmm. of women's lives not that that's everything they did but the stories of women's lives that the big highlight points seem to end up involving textiles right yes and it's kind of depressing that you know the life of women is typically reduced to marriage childbirth and death but well also think about where we get our information about these women they weren't writing their own histories that's right but also playing off of that then it also kind of makes it depressing then going along the theme of your dissertation then that this kind of move to kind of write women out of textile production in this era of history that if the story is like here are women, and what are we going to show about women? Textiles, textiles, textiles. And then it's like, let's remove that from the story altogether. We'll just assume that women were not heavily involved in that. In well, it's run. not removing them from the story altogether. It's removing them from the economy. The economy, right. Yeah. It's, women were associated with textiles in these very prescribed ways. Mm-hmm. That showed that they were women. And they didn't have to bother their pretty heads about the finances. Mm-hmm. And I really hope you can hear the sarcasm in my voice because that is not something I believe. Sure. So, okay. I think that actually goes into the conclusion chapter then, mm-hmm. weaving this all together. So we have the first subsection of that is a gap revisited. So Which you what, just brought up. Okay. So what is that gap? The commercial production, who does it and where is it done? Because as we said in the last episode, we have very little evidence for centralized production centers for the stages of spinning and weaving so the gap is who did that work and where and the answer in my opinion is pretty clear that it was women doing that work and most likely in domestic contexts Mm -hmm. and as we discussed in the previous episode what distinguishes between a domestic context and a commercial context can be skewed in that if you have a household that has multiple servants specifically with job titles for spinning and weaving, is that still done in a domestic context or is that a workshop within a house? But I think that either way, we have pretty sufficient evidence that... Women still did the majority of the spinning with the potential of some male servants and slaves participating. And And then women and men wove. So, and related to all that, we talked quite a bit about it in the previous episode, but not in this episode. But we are weaving this all together again. One of the key things you end up talking about 
is the idea of the cottage industry. Well, not just the mm-hmm. idea. It's like an actual thing. So just to review, what's a cottage industry and how does it play in here? A cottage industry is a economic system where production of certain items is done within a domestic context and then either sold piecemeal into a larger economic system or it's possible that you have the merchants providing the materials to people who do the labor within their houses and then get paid for their labor and return the materials in a completed form to the merchants. Mm-hmm. So there's a thing we're looking for. Mm-hmm. It's who's doing the work. Mm-hmm. We know that the, from a narrative perspective, we keep talking about the importance of women doing the work. And there's even cultural founding myths about women doing the work. There seems to be structural indicators that comparative cottage industries that have existed follow similar patterns to what we're seeing here. With, yeah. With and, and we get that by looking at ethnographic comparisons, right? So we can look at cultures that are still around today that spin wool by hand. Or we have more examples of cultures that existed in time periods that had better record, such as 18th century Europe. Or we have examples from turn of the 20th century in Japan, where we have examples of cottage industries where specifically women were doing work at home and then feeding that back into larger systems. So there's kind of an emergent behavior type thing that's happening here where repeatedly in history it's not that this is specifically baked into the universe that this is a women's task but when you end up having domestic structures that kind of emerge based off of some of these patterns that kind of get laid down it it seems as if over and over again this ends up becoming the work specifically of women right yeah okay so i i'm reading off this piece of paper here it says domestic and commercial contrast or complement and morgan has an arrow that says prostitution slash textile production. So I'm going to let you expand that on that. Prostitution slash textile production. What? What does that mean? So in my dissertation conclusion, I make a comparison to women's economic contributions through prostitution and women's contributions through textile production. So if you think about it, both of these are jobs that we know that women did historically, right? We have evidence that women performed these roles. They are both roles that we know had an economic component. And they are roles that don't necessarily have a set location that they happen, right? You could have prostitutes doing their business on street corners. We have examples in texts of prostitutes doing their business in cemeteries. It could be in a purpose-built center, like a brothel, or it could be done out of a home, which the different locations for prostitutes typically have different social connotations, too, in the same way that you have different social connotations for textile production, right? You have a difference between the prostitute who is working on the streets being the lower class Whereas the ones who maybe have a home that they can work out of are the higher end, like courtesans, which 
in textile production, that's like the example between the slaves who are doing textile work for someone else versus the matrona who probably has slaves or servants doing the work for her but is getting the credit like the woman head of the household basically yes so prostitution to textile production there's there's even kind of a pipeline there right because like we we have Mm -hmm. there are images of prostitutes on i think vases or was it yeah this is this is a greek tradition and it's kind of a pseudo greek tradition this isn't a term that was used in classical sources but Scholars talk about the spinning hetairai, which are images on Greek vases that often appear of women who are potentially nude, potentially just wearing revealing clothing, and they are spinning, and there are men approaching them, oftentimes offering them bags of money. Oh, and and like spinning is almost seen as like a way of flirting in some of these, right? Like Yes. And that like, is and that is the combination of the ooh, this is catches the know, eye. Yeah, this is a woman doing what women do. It's also just something that like actually catches the eye. Yeah. So we don't know specifically that these are supposed to be hetairai or prostitutes, but there is a common interpretation in secondary sources that suggests that these are women who are making a living and are prostitutes, but maybe between customers, they work on textile production to maximize their productivity. Oh, so this is something you can kind of do on the side, like a side gig of spinning. The thing about prostitution is that people tend to age out of it, right? Uh, And then... Or at least as they age their revenue from it decreases it decreases but you can keep spinning for longer than you can probably continue to make revenue off of being a prostitute so that's Mm -hmm. almost kind of like a prostitute to spinster pipeline and i I know i'm using that word in a problematic way in an intentional way to open up the next section yes if you start your career as a prostitute who is also spinning as a side hustle then it's entirely possible that by the end of your career, you are a spinner who is doing some prostitution as a side hustle. And I introduced the S word, spinster. So let's jump straight into that. The next part is cultural threads, which says spinsters, comma, Etsy slash Ravelry, as Morgan's note. So what what is it about that word spinster where I said it and you paused? So the term spinster is etymologically connected to the word spinner. It's a variation of that word. And initially, it just meant a woman who spun. But in specifically British and American colloquial terms, that term has been used as a pejorative to derisively talk about older unmarried women. If you're a woman and you do not get married, then you may find yourself in a position where your father and then brothers or other male family members may not be in a position where they can continue to support you. And spinning was a job that women could do fairly consistently throughout history up until 
the Industrial Revolution, women could spin from home and make money. And then even after the Industrial Revolution, women could still be spinners in factories. And so the whole having cultural threads that are associated with women in ancient Rome, and then a kind of continuing into further traditions, including some side hustle or primary hustle traditions, that, that's happened in our culture too, right? So the, I'm, I'm guessing that's what the Etsy slash Ravelry side of this part is, right? Yeah, so in modern society, for the most part, we don't have people who are spinning out of their homes to make money. It's possible that people might still do that as a side hustle, but those people are more likely to be selling their hand-spun yarn on some place like Etsy or selling their textile patterns on Ravelry, etc. So we still have these spaces where predominantly women, although sometimes men as well, have these side sources of income, which may or may not be their primary sources of income, that is based on textiles. And a lot of times that in the modern world is tying onto this idea of crafts not as a job, but as a hobby market. So the people who are selling things on Etsy or Ravelry might be using it as a income revenue stream, but they're selling to people who are purchasing it as part of a hobby market. And that's even in today being a post-industrial society where you can you can eliminate somebody from spinning things, whereas in ancient Rome, mm-hmm. somebody's still got to spin that thing. Yeah, well, and I mean, even with modern production techniques, we have machines that spin now. So that that stage of the production bottleneck is mostly automated at this point. However, there are still stages of textile production that require... Manual labor. Manual labor. So there are definitely large portions of people, probably largely women, who are still working in factories sewing your shirts. Right. But the main point here that I was highlighting was that this is happening with women still doing primary or side hustles, even when industrialization could eliminate that. Mm -hmm. And so if you can't eliminate it, Right, then that means that like it, it seems to increase the possibility, right? Yes. So there's one more part that we didn't make a note of here, but this has to do with the common relationship between this and many other periods of history. I, I remember you're saying that you talked to somebody recently who was studying cheese making, I think it was, and she was like, It's yes. the same thing, right? Like Yeah, so there's a a trend an in anti pattern, may we say? Yeah, maybe an anti pattern in many areas of history that are not necessarily related where you have tasks that begin as domestic chores that are often done by women and then once they become commercialized they are at least perceived to be male jobs. So I was speaking to a woman whose research was on cheese production in colonial America and she got all excited and told me about how this followed the same trend where when it was done within the household then it was a woman's job and when it was done externally then it was a male's job and 
You see the same thing with chefs, for example, where cooks in the household have traditionally been seen as women and chefs in a professional environment were traditionally seen as men. And the same thing with computer programming. It was a secretary's job primarily for Mm -hmm. a while. And then, you know. Yeah. Once people realized that that was a moneymaker. It's a a capital I, capital J, J important job now. Yeah. I think this is another episode that we teased in our first episode that we haven't done yet. But there will be another episode coming about the uh, beginning of programming and its association with textiles. Yes. So finally, we're at the end. Mending the gap. Mm Mm-hmm. And my dissertation was bookended with this phrase. I'm just going to read a couple of sentences here. The central question of this dissertation has been, what roles did women play in textile production within the Roman Empire? Throughout this work, I've spun a narrative navigating across the literary construction of the domestic housewife, the spinner providing thread for the textile industry, and the performative use of spinning and weaving as an attribute of femininity in the face of consistent, yet consistently minimal, amounts of evidence. Therefore, I return to the motif that has appeared throughout the dissertation. Sometimes, the whole that delineates the absence of evidence is itself the shape of the evidence. Let us be explicit, then. For the majority of the space where we lack definitive proof, this whole is woman-shaped. Therefore, we pick out the likely missing piece— Women provided a significant commercial and domestic contribution to the economy of textile production. This is not a binary choice, as made clear through the model of the cottage industry. This is carried forward, then, into the performative roles of women in ceremonial contexts and social narratives. There it is, the second to the last paragraph of Morgan's dissertation. We will leave it as an exercise for the reader to read the last one. I don't know, I actually feel like that kind of speaks for itself. I don't know if we have to say much more on that. Yeah, I don't think we have to. But we we have some not specifically dissertation topic things that we wanted to talk about. So first of all, this one's semi-dissertation related. We covered it in a previous episode, but just quickly. There is an addendum to your dissertation. What's it about? There is an addendum on experiential and experimental textile production. So this is about me learning how to spin and weave and constructing looms. And then I added a section on artifact dispersal and how we interpret that as archaeologists, but then kind of tallied up the spinning implements in my household and their dispersal throughout the house. And how, how somebody might have interpreted it if our house was knocked to the ground and somebody found it in the future. Don't knock yes, our house to the ground. If In the future, if someone found the archaeological remains of our house, there's every possibility that they would interpret our house as a centralized production center because I have a lot of spindles and is not because I'm producing textiles for a commercial market because it takes a long time to spin wool by hand. It's kind of like why I have pens all over the house. Actually, well, that's part of the reason is just because I like to have spindles at hand so that if I'm bored, I have something to do. But part of the reason I have so many spindles is also because I have taught spinning. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to be teaching spinning to a group of people, you have to have a sufficient number of spindles. So I've got probably about 10 spindles that are all made out of identical materials that I made myself. And they are 
cheap and wood and the simplest possible spindles I could make, which archaeologically could in- could definitely be interpreted as a centralized production center, right? Sure. And you also built a badass Roman tubian loom. I and, did. Which sat behind you while you dis- defended your dissertation and also... Um, it continues to sit behind me whenever I'm on video calls. That's right. Yeah, so there, there, I mean, if you want to read more about that, you can read that section of the dissertation or listen to the podcast episode. We already talked about that. Mm-hmm. So we kind of wanted to wrap this up talking about your experience. And we, we also kind of did an episode on this. So we're going to be kind of br- brief. We are releasing the source code mm-hmm. to your dissertation. What license are we using for that source code? CC by SA. And then I think I'd probably uh, the, just... the source code is CC by SA as well. Yeah, I'm probably going to dual license it under CC by SA and Apache V2, because Apache V2 is what Scribble itself is under. So. Yeah, so that's fair. But it, it's kind of funny, because since you're using Scribble, your dissertation itself is literally a program, right? Because yeah. it's literally a racket program. And we did actually program certain features into my dissertation, which we're not going to go into too much detail of, because we did a separate episode about writing my dissertation in Scribble. One, one, fu- one thing we did talk about in that previous episode is it was great... Because you're able to use Git Annex. Mm-hmm. So one of the funny things is, is that Git Annex was mostly auto-committing for you, mm-hmm. except for when weird things would happen and it would just stop auto-committing for a while and I'd check on your computer and it's like, oh, hasn't committed for three weeks. And then and I'd... then everyone had panic attacks. And then it, there was like a massive commit that would happen all at once. But there's just a lot of commits that are like auto-commits by Git Annex Assistant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they don't have great commit names. Like So if this was like a collaborative project, it might have happened a bit differently in that way. But it was just mostly you typing mm-hmm. away at things. But the the other thing is that since we're using Git Annex, there's a bunch of the kind of larger what we call quote unquote binary files, even though that's all all files on a Unix system are binary files, but non plain text files, right? Not like the racket files or scribble files or whatever. Um, a bunch of those, like the images, there are certain ones that you can release, and that, some that we can't, right? Because you don't have the quote unquote image right. Which is like one of a couple things. Either you don't have permission from the copyright author and it's not under a free culture license, or you might even have theoretically the permission to do so, but some museum might decide that they don't want to be your friends anymore and make your life difficult if you well, or you agreed ahead yeah, of time. Yeah, to be fair, they would... did tell me ahead of time. Okay, yeah. So that kind of frustrates me. The not it's not your fault, but just kind of the the pattern of like the way it restricts the ability to publish. Well, and they 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 told me ahead of time that I would have to get permission from them to publish the images that I took while I was visiting their collection. But then they the didn't frustrating respond to thing you. is that they haven't responded to my request to publish those images at this point. Yeah, we're not going to say which which institution. You can figure it out by looking at the dissertation, uh, probably. Which may have been rectified by the same time you've seen the latest export. But yeah. anyway, when you download it, you should be able to just type make or make HTML or make PDF, and it should be able to just compile a dissertation for you. You might not be pulling down all of the images, um, or actually you certainly won't be, You'll because some of them... We can't distribute. And also, you have a subdirectory in there that I think was like your papers and sources mm-hmm. for yeah, some there of the are papers. Yeah, there are some PDFs of and you articles just, and stuff. And you're just not publishing those, right? Yeah, you're like, because those are published elsewhere. They're published elsewhere, or you might not have the permission to be able to distribute those, right? Yes. So, um, also, since we will be releasing this source code and you can look through the Git repo, you might notice there are some 
commits specifically by Christine. And there is a pretty long and questionable tradition in academia for acknowledgements that are basically to the researcher's spouse saying thanks for typing. And I am going to acknowledge that I am doing that as well. So there, there were times where Morgan was very overwhelmed or had a migraine and could not actually physically look at the computer because the, the screen was too bright. too bright and Morgan had been staring at a screen for too long. So what we did was Morgan just dictated aloud what she wanted to write and I just acted as Morgan's secretary and typed it in. Yes, which at one point led to a hilarious typo that almost got put in a commit message, but we caught it beforehand. Yeah, I originally accidentally typed, um, I misspelled my own name in the commit message and then wrote, Christ typed, Morgan dictated. So obviously then, I, I meant to say Chris. And then I noticed it and started giggling because it's like the Jesus take the wheel of my dissertation. Which I think Christ the, take the keyboard. That, I think at that point you actually did feel like that. So like I did. It, uh, but um, I could not type at that moment. That was very close to the end of things too, and I think you were very like I'm so done with this. But you, I think did I was also very sleep deprived. I think you did, but then you did actually become done with it, right? Like that was right at the end. Yes, you finished. I finished and. That's largely because of your help and support. And I really do appreciate that. So, so in... I didn't do it. It wasn't my work, but I did do the thing that spouses often do, which is to be a support system. Yes. And so I would like to say thank you for typing and all of your support. No problem. And is there anything else we want to say? Well, and the dissertation itself is published under a Creative Commons attribution share alike 4.0 international license just like the podcast just like the podcast and when you are submitting a dissertation at least through my institution there is no institutional infrastructure for releasing a dissertation under basically any license other than a standard all rights reserved but copyright. you're releasing it on your own website, so that's yeah. your workaround. So the so the workaround for actually submitting my dissertation is at my institution you have the option to include a copyright page. So I included a copyright page and instead of copyright all rights reserved, I put released under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International License by Morgan Lemmer Weber 2021. And I just did that manually. However, if I was someone who didn't have as firm a grasp on Creative Commons licensing options... You might not have known what to do. Yeah. In, in fact, when I published my master's thesis, I did know what Creative Commons licenses were, but I published that as copyright all rights reserved because that was the path of least resistance. When you submit your thesis or dissertation to UMI or ProQuest, the only copyright license option that they give you is all rights reserved. So the good news is that I feel like this is getting better, for, at least for papers, maybe mm -hmm. not for dissertations, right? Like, Because the open access is like a big old buzzword right now. And like, I'm not complaining about that. Like mm -hmm. that's a, a buzzword that I think is helping humanity. Um, well, the 
some people, including some lesser non-free licenses under open access, maybe that's not as good, but mm-hmm. it's still still useful to provide um, the ability to copy at least. So I think things are getting better, but I do agree that we could do even better mm-hmm. to especially encourage people that, you know, it's okay to release your dissertation as a free culture open access work. Yeah. In fact, you might get some people that actually read it that way. So I think I'm definitely getting more engagement on my research by releasing it online under a free culture license and then also doing this public scholarship version of it and just discussing it in podcast format for people who maybe don't want to read the entire dissertation, which maybe doesn't fit into the standard academic publishing cycle, but it depends on what your priorities are. And your priority is on increasing access to knowledge. Yes. And on that note, do we want to end this episode? Yeah, I think so. Thank you all for listening and engaging with my scholarship. And if anyone has any feedback, I would be happy to hear it. All right. You can listen to the end of the episode to hear how to do that. All right. And on that note, bye, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Chris Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Chris Lemmerweber, meaning myself, in Milky Tracker and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project and is waved into the public domain under CC0 1.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community in hash Foss and Crafts at irc.libera.chat. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash foss and crafts that's it for this week until next time stay free and stay crafty i blame this cat oh (laughs) did you hear the cat these spots though i know this cat is sitting in my lap right now because she wanted to rub her face against the cardboard box, but we're having her sit in my lap instead. And she's currently, currently pretty content. Currently pretty content. I don't think it's gonna last. She may appear on this episode. We'll find out. <laughs> Bye, cat. There, there goes the cat. <laughs>